Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Okay, welcome to the first Trump administration cabinet meeting. You all know me, Ivanka. My dad will be here in just a second. He's just watching some television. But I wanted to greet all of you. General Petraeus, General Flynn, General Mattis. Hi, Mad Dog. General Kelly, Dr. Carson, General LeMay, General Rommel, General Zod, Senator Sessions, Secretary Chow, Mr. Blatter. It's really nice to see all of you. Now, in the days ahead, you're going to hear... Dr. Carson, I'm going to ask you to turn your chair around and face the table like everyone else. You're going to hear terms like junta and maybe even military dictatorship because we definitely do have a lot of generals. So what I'm going to ask, Dr. Carson, we don't pour our coffee onto our muffin. Just just drink the coffee and eat the muffin like everybody else at the table. So what I'm going to ask is, does everybody have to wear a uniform all the time? My father asked me to Google that, but it wasn't really clear. So depending on how much latitude you have, maybe you could take turns with the uniform thing so that people don't think, what is it, Dr. Carson? You've drawn a picture. What is that? Is that you trying to hit your mother in the head with a hammer? Yes. And over there is General Zod flying over the pyramids. It's a very nice picture, Dr. Carson, but I really need you to focus along with everybody else here. And if you can't do that, please take your drawing stuff and go in the little room where we had you an hour ago and draw to your heart's content and listen to this radio episode. Okay, sir? And now the man who's outraged over the snubs to Kim Davis, Bill Cosby, and Kurt Schilling. Not even a Trump Tower visit for any of them. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, why aren't they being considered? They would seem to fit. I just want to make clear to anybody who was troubled by this. Ben, it's Ben Carson's claim that he tried to hit his mother in the head with a hammer. That's not something unpleasant that we made up about him. And I, I did, I did think I heard Sepp Blatter in there. I don't think Sepp Blatter is part of the cabinet yet. Once again, it wouldn't be, you know, it would fit. Um, all right. So um, before we get to Matt Flegenheimer, I just want to quickly say <clears throat> that one of the things we're going to do here is, I mean, this is not a normal presidency elect, if there is such a term. And and given that, and I think it's kind of important not to treat it as normal because then you normalize it. So, I mean, we are going to, particularly on these Monday shows, make a point of keeping you informed about things that are happening that uh, don't necessarily conform to most people's idea of good government. We will talk about Ben Carson in our second segment. Just want to quickly just uh, review through the weekend. Uh, Paul Ryan, the speaker, refused to address Donald Trump's claim that millions of people voted illegally in this election. He was on 60 Minutes. Um, you know, Paul Ryan is going to go down in history as being extraordinarily spineless about refuting Donald Trump in situations where Donald Trump has said things that actually are damaging to America and are baseless, which is how I would characterize the notion that millions of people voted illegally. The president-elect is still codependent on Saturday Night Live. He watches the skits about him, and then he freaks out on Twitter. This is not something that presidents-elect typically do. Uh, one of his other nominees, General Mattis, needs a waiver uh, to to evolve kind of to excuse me to avoid kind of a revolving door problem. This kind of waiver has not been granted 
since General Marshall, General Marshall is the only person to receive such a waiver, it was not granted lightly. Mattis is also on the board of Theranos, which is this spectacularly failing in every possible respect uh, blood test diagnostic company. Uh, General Petraeus is on the short list for Secretary of State after trading classified information for sex or at least sharing it with his lover. Um, Edward Snowden, who obviously has a dog in the fight, claims that Petraeus's info was of a more high grade and therefore more compromising nature than anything Snowden released. Um, and oh, I'll just do one more. And that's the Comet Ping Pong story. That's the pizza place in Washington where the guy showed up with a shotgun claiming to be investigating some news, some fake news, basically, that he had encountered over the campaign season. It has to do with this weird pedophilia rumor. What's sort of we- upset, upsetting about this or distressing is that that particular bizarre story that's suggesting that some Washington business might be a front for a pedophilia ring connected to Hillary Clinton was circulated and kind of vouched for in, I think, early November, my Michael Flynn, uh, the national security advisor, and his son um, is is very tied in with Michael Cernovich, who's one of the kings of this fake news alt-crazy movement. So, I mean, you've got a guy who's about to become national security advisor who has pretty significant ties to this stupid rumor that is prompting people to do violent and frightening things. All right. So on that encouraging note, we're going to go to Matt Flegenheimer. Matt Flegenheimer has been one of the reporters trying to figure out exactly what it means uh, when Donald Trump talks about separating himself from his business. Uh, And he has now tweeted that on December 15th, he will announce that he's going to leave his business in total to focus on his presidency. So Matt Flegenheimer from The New York Times, um, I, I guess the question, the first question is, I mean, you can one can say that one is doing this uh, and one can make a certain amount of gestures to suggest that one is doing this. But I think it's another thing to do it meaningfully. And one of the questions that you've been trying to figure out is, can he in a truly meaningful way place his business in the hands of his children and then claim he has nothing to do with it? You know, it's really it's really quite complicated. Obviously, this has been an issue um, throughout the campaign. It's gotten a lot of attention since the election itself. There was a debate at which, um, I think the CNBC debate at which, you know, Mr. Trump was asked, what do you do with the businesses? Would you place it in a, in a blind trust? And he said something to be effective. Um, sure, you know, my, my children, they're right over there. They're in the crowd. You know, uh, Don, Ivanka, and Eric, you know, is that a blind trust? I don't know. Um, most experts would suggest that's not a blind trust, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, creating a sort of meaningful separation from the company um, would not involve um, putting his children in charge. Um, so he's making this announcement on the 15th. His children are supposed to be there with him, according to what he tweeted last week. Um, it's very uh, much an open question what he'll be saying. Yeah, I, I think just to emphasize the notion of the blind trust, I mean, the, the fundamental concept behind the blind trust, the latent understanding of what we have of what that term means is that you are so distant from whatever your assets are that if something happens in the Philippines that I'm just picking as an, an example, that's the consequence of U.S. policy. You don't know whether it's good for you or bad for you. That's what we mean by blind trust. You have no way of figuring out whether or not some recent event that you as president might have had something to do with has actually improved or or degraded your own financial status. I mean, that's what a blind trust is, right? Sure. And and in in the case of the Trump organization, you know, so much of what they do is is licensing, is branding, is is the Trump name itself. Um, And the extent that you can sort of extract the the principle from that equation uh, is very, very unclear. you know, and in some ways, you said it's very complicated, and you're totally right. But in a way, it's not complicated. We could we could look at it 
if, in fact, Hillary Clinton had been elected, I mean, the main thing we would be talking about would be the Clinton Family Foundation and its various subsidiaries. And I mean, I, I think it is pretty clear what we would all be saying, whether they were immediately willing to do it or not. I think ultimately they would have had to be been persuaded to completely get out of the Clinton Family Foundation and anything that had anything to do with it and that Bill Clinton couldn't be in any position to receive, you know, massive fees during the time of Clinton's of Hillary Clinton's presidency. I, you know, that's a, it's a small enough thing. So maybe it's easier to talk about um, the the Trump problem is so big. But when you look at it on the Clinton side, you think, well, no, we would have understood exactly every single tie that Hillary Clinton and her daughter and her husband would have had to sever. And we would have understood what it would mean to sever that. I, I think when you say it's complicated, you mean because there are just there's so many different kinds of business activities on the Trump side. Sure. And, and a lot of it is um, just sort of coming to light. And, and some of it, I'm, I'm sure, will continue to come to light. It was very much um, you know, not clear during the campaign the extent to which he had certain projects underway in some of these countries that have come up these last few weeks. Um, we've seen some, some overlap, obviously, between the meetings that the family has had, the children have had, um, and some of the sort of diplomatic relationships um, that Trump is starting to foster. Uh, so any one of those, even if there's not um, any sort of clear manifestation of the conflict of interest just does present this um, very thorny question for the president-elect about whether his actions are being done with any sort of eye towards his business or his children's business, as the case may be. Right. There's so many moving parts here, it's hard to keep track of all of them. Even today, one of your colleagues in The Times, uh, Michael Forsyth, is suggesting that actually Donald Trump's company's interest in Taiwan uh, may uh, have existed for a long time. At least an interest in doing some business in Taiwan may have been around for a long time. Meanwhile, Phil Rucker and some other reporters from The Washington Post are reporting that that phone call from the leader of Taiwan was not, you know, a spontaneous, hey, hi, congratulations, you don't know me, but but in fact, an exchange that had been in the works for a long time. So it's like every time something happens, you have to look at what it seems to be on the surface and what might be the complicated business history of these kinds of things. You, Matt, wrote in particular about the dealings with Japan and about the president's presence of Ivanka Trump at the, the sort of transition meeting with the leader of Japan. Tell us about uh, the Trump family's Japan dealings. Um, sure. So the the first meeting that, that President-elect Trump actually had with a, a foreign head of state uh, after his election was with the Prime Minister of Japan uh, at Trump Tower on December, I'm sorry, uh, on November 17th. Um, and it was sort of a, a curious thing at the time. A, a photo of that meeting uh, came out that included uh, Ivanka Trump in, in the meeting, um, as well as Jared Kushner, I believe, her husband, um, which was seen as, as sort of an unusual thing to have, you know, the, the child of the President-elect in the meeting itself. Um, what we gathered in the reporting is that um, at the exact same time, actually, over two days in, in Tokyo, there was a private viewing underway for Ivanka Trump-branded products um, as part of a licensing deal that's near completion um, with a, a sort of a major apparel company in Japan um, whose parent company is, is uh, largest shareholder is the Development Bank of Japan, which is owned by the Chinese, I'm sorry, by the Japanese government. Um, I'm already getting tangled trying to describe it. <laughs> exactly. Um, there is... Um, you know, we don't have anything to suggest that this was discussed at that meeting with the prime minister. Um, but again, these are the sorts of questions that will come to the fore with any kind of diplomatic um, relationships, particularly those that involve, you know, President Trump's children. Right. And I think the other thing is that it, with a lot, you know, the, the thing that you were just talking about is an example of 
one of the complicated ways in which this so many of these things are not clear cut. What I mean by that is that, you know, you could sort of say, well, the government of the United States is meeting with the government of Japan or, or country X. That has nothing to do with what the Trump children and the Trump organization might be doing with private uh, businesses in the same country. Well, I mean, obviously, just, you know, intuitively, we know that companies are affected by the regulations and laws of their government. But a lot of these countries, you, the the private business, the, the business that you're dealing with that looks kind of like a private business is a wholly owned subsidiary of the government. I mean, it it is It isn't clear enough in the United States sometimes, but it's really, Matt, not clear in some of these other countries. Sure. And, and, you know, the concern of a lot of sort of the government groups is is that, you know, foreign governments and and foreign entities will not see a meaningful distinction between, you know, President Trump and his children. And and if there is a way to curry favor with his children, with the Trump organization, um, that, you know, word will get back to their father. And and I think that's um, certainly a a question that needs to be asked as he— prepares to take office and prepares to make the separation. So, you know, uh, as we said at the beginning, for this to be really meaningful, there'd have to be some kind of sale of assets and, and the creation of a true blind trust where President Trump really didn't know whether he was in position to benefit from his own activities as president or, or not. So that's clearly not going to happen, at least not anytime soon. So the next thing we have is this suggestion that the children, that the three uh, oldest children of Donald Trump would be able to meaningfully uh, uh, keep things in their own hands opposed to, as opposed to in their, in their father's hands. Nothing about the choreography so far of the transition suggests that anything like that would be the case, right? I mean, these... No, and and frankly, nothing about um, the way the business has been run, you know, before he was even a presidential candidate. These are, you know, children who who very shortly after college all joined the company, and they're all executive vice presidents. They have the same title. They've been um, deeply, deeply involved in in projects for for many years for the Trump Organization. They've traveled the world as sort of ambassadors of the brand, reporting back to their father. Um, they have not operated in a in a business environment that doesn't involve their father as the principal, um, and it's very much an open question how that would look, what that would look like um, if you were to remove himself. Um, the other thing, the other part of this, and we've talked a little bit about this on previous um, episodes, uh, but there's a great graphic that's clickable from your article, Matt, is the way in which there's this kind of circular arrangement that involves the actual agencies of the United States that would either regulate or affect various Trump activities, whether we're talking about the NLRB or the IRS. Um, these organizations, these agencies are going to have staff that is picked out uh, by the transition team, which includes the Trump children. Um, and, and these are agencies that have active cases uh, involving either sure. Donald I mean, Trump the, or the Trump the, organization. The, the, the post office building in, in Washington itself, the, the Trump International Hotel now, um, you know, is a property that's owned by the federal government. It's overseen by the General Services Administration, which the president uh, mm-hmm. points the head of. I mean, all of these sort of thorny bureaucratic questions are are very much central to a lot of what the Trump organization does. And I guess the, one of the questions a lot of people listening might have, and this is going to come up again and again in a different way, different ways, and uh, uh, President-elect Trump himself said, I think maybe in the meeting with the Times, 
that uh, a president can't have a conflict of interest, which doesn't mean that a president shouldn't have a conflict of interest. Uh, it also ignores things like bribery laws and and the emoluments clause of the Constitution. But I mean, sort of sort of a larger question is: Could anybody possibly be the kindergarten teacher here? Could anybody be the wrath and stand there with a whistle and say, "Oh no, that that's not going to do it"? I mean, is this going to have to exist in the form of public pressure or a commentary from members of Congress, or are they just going to be able to make up the rules the way they want to as they go along. You know, it's very unclear, and, and he's made the point that, you know, well, the American public knew that I had this business empire when I was running, which is completely true. Um, and, you know, to, to some extent, you know, you saw that in, in his tweets last week. He said it was visually important was the word that he used, that he, um, you know, show the American people that he's leaving his company. Um, there was no reference to any sort of ethical imperative or legal imperative. Um, and, and legally, according to a lot of experts, he might actually be right. Um, as you said, that's a different question entirely from whether a president should be involved in this sort of way. Um, there's also the issue of what we used to call optics. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that happen that, that I, I don't know, they just wouldn't happen under any other, any other circumstances. I think it was your article that pointed out that Donald Trump Jr. spent Thanksgiving hunting wild goats, well, traditional traditional yes. uh, Thanksgiving activity, hunting <laughs> wild goats in Turkey. And this in, is in Turkey, indeed. Yeah, yeah in Turkey. So uh, I think Ben Franklin did that. Uh, that was the Thanksgiving part. It was in Turkey. So... Um, <laughs> We already know that there's been this little kind of complicated back and forth uh, between the uh, the Erdogan administration in Turkey and Trump. But it's one of those things, too, where if you have one of these key people from your family, they're engaging in recreation. And I assume, you know, requiring various involvements of the Turkish military or their intelligence uh, apparatus to be aware of you. It's once again very hard to keep that relationship pure. Sure. And, you know, the Trump Organization didn't answer our, our questions about that that outing. Um, our reporting does suggest from, from folks on the ground that there were Turkish intelligence officers who were involved in, in the planning of that trip and the execution of it um, for Don Jr. Um, but sure. And, and these are, you know, the, the children themselves have, you know, as a matter of course, often just, just met with, with foreign dignitaries, with heads of state in their travels um, as ambassadors of the Trump Organization. Um, there was a sort of wild interview with um, Don Jr. from 2011, I believe, where he talks about, it's the sort of Trump Organization video they're sort of promoting, and he talks about a typical day in the life. He says, oh, you know, I was in Columbia, I met with the president, did some other stuff. I mean, the, the nature of, of the relationships these children have had with, um, with foreign governments, um, you know, they've had a level of access for, for a long time that um, they have not thought twice about and, and have had really no reason to think twice about. Now, all of these um, questions have come to the fore, and, and it's really an adjustment for them as much as anyone else. Right. And it, it, so far, it's an adjustment that they have not participated in. I mean, just to go back to what we were saying before, and then we'll let you go so you can do some more great reporting about this, but um, is, you know, if you were going to make this meaningful, if you were Donald Trump and you were going to make this meaningful, you would say to the three offspring, you would say, all right, the, the transition starting right now. You guys are never in the room with me when I'm doing anything that involves being president-elect. You guys have got to be kept like Caesar's wife. You've got to be beyond reproach. So you're never there when I'm being president-elect. You go off someplace else, so nobody can ever say that there was a blurring. But, I mean, Matt, as you've sure, alluded to, there's been you know, nothing but that blurring. Yeah, but it's, it's hard to overstate the role that they played, and, and Jared Kushner as well, in the campaign itself and are playing in the transition. I mean, these are people whom he, he trusts a great deal as, as much as anybody, um, you know, inside or outside of his administration. I think that'll remain the case. These are the people he trusts. And I think he wants them around for 
you know, counsel on all sorts of things, um, presidential or otherwise. All right. So Matt Flegenheimer from The New York Times. Great to talk to you. Uh, I think uh, Matt would join me in saying to the rest of you, if you insist on hunting, either hunt something that can fight back or hunt something that's really fast. Don't hunt goats. You know, I mean, like what chance does the goat have? All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for being with us. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Ben Carson, who, of course, is one of the latest new faces, but not really a new face in this story. Family business. How long do we keep it? Family business. Right. So we want to focus on one other uh, aspect of the Trump transition. Uh, That is the one that has been announced most recently. Uh, It is the idea that uh, Dr. Ben Carson uh, is going to be the secretary of housing uh, and urban development. And so we all remember Ben Carson from the nomination campaign. Uh, In just a second, we're going to talk to two guests about the implications of this. But for those of you who have forgotten, um, and I think also one of the reasons that Ben Carson seems plausible to at least to Donald Trump uh, as a nominee. I mean, he's a neurosurgeon. He doesn't have any background in uh, administering uh, housing uh, programs or anything like that uh, or anti-poverty efforts or or anything like that. But he did grow up in poverty, as he's about to tell you. Uh, He grew up in the projects uh, and maybe experientially uh, he has some thoughts about what that's like. I was born into a bad situation. We did live in dire poverty. Dire poverty. Having grown up in dire poverty, the thing that I hated the most in life was poverty. You know, some people hate spiders, some people hate snakes. Some people hate spiders and snakes. I hated poverty. I couldn't stand it. And I hated poverty. I grew up very poor. We were very poor. There was never money for anything. I just hated poverty. It was a miserable environment. This ghetto in Detroit, Michigan, is where Ben Carson grew up boarded up windows and doors, sirens and gangs, rats and roaches. My world of poverty. I was absolutely sure there was some mistake and I was born into the wrong family. Poverty was really more of a choice than anything else. Uh, And it just really depended on how hard I wanted to work. All right. So uh, alarming when you say poverty is a choice, if you know anything about the structural nature of poverty in this country and how difficult it really is uh, to get out of it and how many people simply do not. All right. So uh, joining us uh, to begin with is Betsy Crum, executive director of the Women's Institute uh, for hold on for um, housing and economic development. I believe she's joining us from Boston today, but a longtime presence uh, here in Hartford uh, in the world of housing. Betsy, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Colin. So um, maybe just to refresh people's memories, um, what does HUD or Housing and Urban Development, what does that agency do? Well, uh, HUD controls about $37 billion of funding um, for a variety of programs that sooner or later touch almost everyone who uh, lives in a home in in Connecticut and in the country one way or another. They, their primary programs are the Federal Housing Administration that is an insurance uh, for single-family homes. They kind of created, they've done over 30 million single-family mortgages since they were started in 1938. They also administer uh, federal public housing, which is a, one of our biggest safety net programs of house for people who are low and extremely low income as well as administer the Housing Choice Voucher Program, sometimes called Section 8 program, um, that helps people 
get out of public housing and live in rental housing all around the region and, and anywhere they choose. They also administer um, and, and oversee the uh, fair housing law mm-hmm. in, this, in the country, um, which has, since 1968, has made it uh, possible for people to choose where they want to live instead of having it chosen for them. So it's a really important agency and probably touches everyone at some point or another in their life. Right. If you don't at least know somebody right now who is affected by the housing and urban development uh, policies, you need to get out more or meet more people or something like that because it's it's a lot of people. Um, All all right. We're going to have sort of a a two-handed conversation about this now. Um, Also joining us, as I uh, add her to the board here, uh, is uh, Elise Wiebeck, National Enterprise Reporter at The Washington Post. Uh, Welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So, Elise, I'm going to have you do the thing that we so often have to do in situations like this when there's been an acrimonious primary campaign and then certain people from that campaign wind up in key positions of a new administration. That's not, It's nothing new. I mean, for example, George H.W. Bush had a lot of very unkind things to say about Ronald Reagan before becoming his vice presidential nominee. But this was an especially acrimonious primary campaign and then general election campaign. And, and this was a situation where Donald Trump, when he saw Ben Carson as an adversary, had like really horrible things to say about Dr. Ben Carson. Can you give us kind of a sense of what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's fascinating to see how quickly these two have repaired ties. In fact, a Donald Trump spokesperson told me uh, last week that, in fact, uh, Mr. Trump com- considers Dr. Carson a brother, uh, a close confidant and friend, which is Fascinating, given that on the campaign trail in the heat of the primary season, Trump actually said that Carson had a, quote, pathological temper that was incurable, and he compared it to child molesting, which was just a jaw-dropping comment and seemed like the kind of thing that would ruin a relationship forever. This was Trump trying to appeal to uh, early Republican primary voters in states like Iowa, and he was saying that Carson could not be trusted, that he should not be chosen by these Republican voters because of things that he had said about his past. Carson had told stories about being a young man with a violent temper, and he uh, believes his religious faith was what essentially saved him from that. Um, But you're right. I mean, Donald Trump has gone after Ben Carson in one of the most ruthless ways I think we've seen in this entire election cycle, and that's really saying something. But now we see that they have repaired ties, and uh, they seem prepared and ready to work together uh, now that Ben Carson is being nominated for a cabinet post. So Ben Carson's peculiar personal biography, which uh, is often a tale of a fallen soul who was brought to greater heights involves stories about him, Ben Carson, claiming that he tried to hit his mother in the head with a hammer, that he tried to stab one of his friends, and uh, by an act of providence, the knife was blocked by the belt buckle, those kinds of things. Some of the veracity of those stories were called into question, too. But at least another thing that, that Ben Carson did during the campaign was to basically call into question the, the, the basic kind of programming that Betsy Crumb was just enumerating uh, that's overseen by HUD. He, he seemed to be an unlikely champion for fair housing programs and things like that. Yes, it'll be very interesting to see what he does in this role. 
uh, Ben Carson is not someone who's ever held elected office. He's never been in charge of public policy. He has no real expertise in these matters. Uh, he came to public prominence after the publication of that biography due to his inspiring personal story, and then uh, became a kind of a favorite on the conservative talk show circuit and the speaking circuit um, through his criticism of uh, federal programs like the Affordable Care Act. This is not someone who has spent any time in government or, again, with public policy. So he has been a critic of the idea of the social safety net. Uh, he would frame it as saying that he doesn't believe social programs should benefit people who are, quote, unquote, able-bodied. That is a term we're likely to hear a lot from him. He believes that the safety net ought to be devoted exclusively to people who are unable to work for themselves. He feels that people uh, who avail themselves of social programs are going to be less likely to work uh, in a way that would eventually get them out of poverty. So it's unclear, you know, will he undo and unravel many of these programs based on that ideological belief, or will he surround himself with people who are more invested in just tweaking the status quo, I think it's very hard to say at this point. Let me switch back over to Betsy Crum, Executive Director of the Women's Institute for Housing and Economic Development. As long as we're talking about personal biographies, Betsy, the other thing that we know about President Trump is that uh, early in his career, when he was working for his father, he also uh, violated, I mean, it wasn't also, he violated the fair housing law, right? He, they, they were oh, involved right. in a case. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he, he was, um, he was, brought uh, under the fair housing law for violations for refusing to rent in some of his, even his luxury housing. Well, his father had some violations as well under the fair housing law for affordable housing, which his, his father did develop. And, and then Donald Trump himself for violating the basic rules under the fair housing law. One thing I want to raise, and, you know, Ben Carson, who has a, does have a very interesting personal story is has really frankly no qualifications whatsoever to run to run HUD maybe more qualified to run HHS which he declined the invitation to do that saying he wasn't qualified for that he himself during the campaign talked about the fair housing law and compared it to sort of a a, a communist i think was the word he used or it, it had elements of communism in it and called it as wrote an editorial describing fair housing as an Obama administration's experiment, even though it's been around since 1968. So he has a kind of a fundamental lack of appreciation for housing, and I think very much oversimplifies the HUD and its mission as being for people who live in abject poverty. It has actually served people and has done a huge Task, a huge job in creating the middle class in this country through the, through subsidized mortgages, but also helps people who are are low income working people live in rental housing um, across the board. So, I I'm really deeply concerned that he's hostile toward fair housing, and has frankly no fundamental understanding of what housing policy in this in this country is. Betsy, quick question: um, Is there a particular canary sitting on a perch somewhere in this equation that you would be watching uh, to keel over yeah. first? I mean, like if, if there's going to be a move against basic kinds of fair housing concepts, uh, where would that begin? 
Oh, well, I was actually thinking more about we, one of the huge economic drivers in this country is the low-income housing tax credit program. It's actually not a HUD program. It's a, it's a program underwritten by the IRS, but it's, a, it's the largest uh, producer of affordable housing uh, in the country. And during the, the Great Recession was the largest generator, the largest funder of all housing developed during that, that period. What we're already seeing under the Trump administration in the last week or so is huge volatility in the tax credit markets because of his promises to cut um, to cut the the incremental tax rates and to roll back on some of the incentives for private investors to get into housing. That's not a that's not a fair housing or a Ben Carson issue, but it speaks to your earlier talk about the whole administration and its and these unintended or un um maybe intended but unacknowledged consequences of of policies that show almost very little understanding of the nuance and the depth of what's going on in in our various industries. Um, Elise Viebeck from the Washington Post, uh, just to uh, kind of bear down a little bit on on Betsy's point. So when Ben Carson was first being uh, floated as a possible HHS secretary, he cited his lack of of, his, of experience and, and described himself, I think at one point, as he would be a fish out of water in a huge bureaucracy. And he didn't want to assume a role, quote, these are his words, that could cripple the presidency. So that was his attitude towards a job for which he might have been vaguely qualified as a neurosurgeon to handle health and human services. Uh, now he's handling uh, housing and urban development. Do we know anything? Does the Washington Post have any idea what changed his mind about himself? Uh, yes. In fact, it was Donald Trump's essentially pleading and relentless pursuit of Ben Carson that eventually changed his mind. Ben Carson was not, as you said, interested in joining the administration. And he tends to be a pretty interesting interview for those of us in the media because he can occasionally give those quotes uh, that are unusual for a, a figure in the public sphere, a little bit more candid than we're used to. Of course, one of the questions that was raised by him saying that he was unqualified to lead a federal department was, well, you also ran for president, you know, uh, which is obviously a much bigger job than merely leading a place like HHS or HUD. But I, I think Donald Trump was very interested in having Ben Carson on board. As I said earlier, they have developed a kind of friendship. Um, I believe that Ben Carson, as uh, an inspirational figure, is of interest to Donald Trump. Uh, he believes that having a, a kind of big thinker, I, I think, is how he would describe the idea of having him in that role. Now, again, uh, speaking to Ben Carson's qualifications, of which there are very few, uh, it just goes to show how Donald Trump is certainly not speaking uh, traditional policy expertise in any way to fill many of these cabinet roles. He's more interested in having people who he has, quote-unquote, good chemistry with. All right. Uh, Elise Viebeck from The Washington Post, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Before we go to break, uh, Betsy Crum, I want to come back to you for just a second here and and just say that, you know, one of the ways in which uh, Ben Carson, maybe the only way that he knows anything about it, is his own experience as a boy living in the projects. Meanwhile, you have Donald Trump's own rhetoric from the campaign where he described cities as these incredibly horrible and dangerous places. Uh, he said, quote, you have so many things, so many problems, so many horrible, horrible problems, the violence, the death, the lack 
lack of education, no jobs. We're going to work with the African-American community. We're going to solve the problem of the inner city. Uh, I think that was a, a rally aimed at the people of Detroit, but not held uh, in Detroit, held uh, in, in a white suburb. But I, I guess one of the questions you'd have about both Trump and Carson is, do they understand the housing problem as it exists in America? Do they think it's compo- confined to uh, largely urban pockets populated by people of color. Uh, I, I'm assuming that's not how you understand the full scope of the housing problem. No, and, you know, just like everything, it's far more nuanced, I think, than the rhetoric of of a campaign and this campaign in particular, and these folks in particular are, are willing to give it credit for. I I think a lot will come down. One, The sort of hopeful light in it to me is that Dr. Ben Carson, who has some very unusual positions on some things is actually an inspirational character who um who does have the ability to be aspirational and if he can take uh his his personal brilliance and turn that into a a very complex and very nuanced problem which is not just about the inner city and it's not just about poverty in african americans but it's about all of us and how we move through a variety of housing needs throughout our lives and and get those needs met if he can if he can rise to that challenge then i think we have a shot at it i um i haven't found a lot to be optimistic about um since the election however Betsy Crum, hopefully at some point we will find some things to be optimistic about, uh, but maybe not today. Betsy Crum is executive director of the Women's Institute for Housing and Economic Development. After this break, we're going to do something that a lot of people have been wanting me to do for a long time, uh, and I apologize for my tardiness, but we are going to talk about the situation at Standing Rock. Dr. Carson's nomination is a victory for all underqualified people. Check your privilege, qualified people. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Fishy Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Solange Knowles. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Tomorrow, a show about nothing, but not about Seinfeld. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, tomorrow we're going to be uh, exploring the concept of the void. at the level of physics, math, and philosophy, what it really means for there to be nothing. It's actually a lot harder for there to be nothing than you might think, especially if you listen to this show. Just kidding. All right. So this is something I really sort of apologize for this. I mean, the campaign sucked up so much oxygen, the presidential campaign, uh, that a lot of other other issues that are important uh, and dramatically important went begging. And I think one of them, to a certain degree, uh, was uh, the Standing Rock uh, standoff uh, and the implicit connection to the oil pipeline. So uh, we're going to play catch up here. Uh, I I am as guilty as anybody else of not knowing as much about this as I should. Uh, But one great way to catch up was to read the work of Wes Enzina, senior editor and writer at Mother Jones, who has done some really great uh, and beautifully written uh, reporting about the Standing Rock situation. So uh, he's joining our show right now. First of all, welcome to our conversation. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. So for the person, for the people who have just been uh, completely blinded uh, by the campaign and are not paying attention uh, to something even as significant as, as this, is there like a, a 100 seconds thumbnail that you can do for people to explain what has been happening? Yeah, sure. The quick sort of sketch of the conflict as it's been playing out at Standing Rock is that a company called Energy Transfer Partners has wanted to build a 1,200-mile pipeline that would take oil from the back in oil fields um, through North Dakota, through uh, Iowa, and end up in Illinois, where the the it's crude oil, and then it would probably most likely be shipped to the Gulf and then refined in, in Gulf Coast refineries. But the, the reason the pipeline was contentious is because it crossed about 1,500 feet north of um, the water supply of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe in North Dakota, and then downriver from from the crossing at a place called Lake Oahe, which is um, that's part of the Missouri River. There are um, about 10 million other people, mostly belonging to, to Native groups, mostly Sioux, Sioux groups. Um, whose water supply they believe could be in danger uh, if the pipeline were to spill, which is a fairly common occurrence. Um, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, the backstory of the conflict. And then beginning in uh, August of this year, people who, a local landowner, this woman named LaDonna Allard, she basically, among others, put out a call and said, hey, the pipeline's coming through here. We've gotten a notice. Do people want to camp on my land and nearby and protest? And uh, you know, it began as a couple tents, and then it multiplied to 10 tents and then 50 tents. And, and now um, there's three camps all sort of around this crossing, just just south of the crossing. And, and it's hard to say how many people are there, maybe a couple thousand. Uh, I first arrived in late October and was there for much of November and then left for a few weeks and, and um, just headed back yesterday. So it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Um and, you know, yesterday I expected, and everyone expected, I think, sort of, there have been multiple eruptions of the conflict. There was an, a moment when uh, that Amy Goodman and Roxy Now caught on tape when dogs had attacked protesters, which obviously has sort of visual resonances with, with Selma and um, civil rights movement. But anyway, dogs were biting protesters. But then, and there have been a variety of, of flare-ups between police and protesters. Uh, and so everyone expected that to happen today, basically, December 5th, because the the governor uh, of North Dakota issued a mandatory evacuation of the camp for uh, for December 5th. So I was getting on a plane yesterday kind of thinking, everything is going to blow up now, um, and let's just, you know, I'm going to go and document that and see what's happening. But then there was a surprise. I can keep going there, or I can kind of um, tell you the surprise, and uh, which is the news of, of today and yesterday. Yeah, let's talk about the news of today and yesterday, although maybe the place to begin is to say that one of the strategies for the protesters was to roll, to drag this thing as far into 2017 as they could that would uh, so that an application process would expire and would have to be started from scratch, maybe ultimately making it expensive enough and time-consuming enough so that uh, the Dallas-based energy transfer partners uh, would start thinking about maybe some, some other way of doing this. So... Uh, yeah. Now enter the surprise. Yeah, well, in, in response to that, that's 100 percent correct. That strategy, and there was even a Norwegian bank that had uh, was ten, provided 10 percent of the funding that last, I think, last week or the week prior, pulled out uh, of the bank because.
part of the delay is to actually get oil flowing. Um, so, so yeah, that's been the strategy. You're right. And so, yeah, last night as I was about to get on, I was on the airplane actually looking at, at Twitter, and um, the chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, Dave Archambault II, he released a statement saying that the, and then the Army Corps released a statement briefly after, saying that the uh, yesterday the Army Corps um, announced they will not grant an easement to energy transfer partners, uh, which is the easement is basically the the, the permission to drill under the Missouri River. And up until that point, the pipeline as of now is completed uh, 98%, 99%, except for this 1,100 stretch of underneath the Missouri River. So the Army Corps of Engineers um, last night said we're not going to grant that easement. And now going forward, they'll do an, another environmental assessment and consider a reroute of the pipeline. The, um, the assistant secretary of the Army Corps, this woman, Joellen Darcy, she said, we've been continuing discussions and exchanges with Standing Rock, Sioux, and Dakota Access, but it's clear there's more work to do. Uh, and the best way to complete that work responsibly and expeditiously is to explore uh, alternate, alternate routes for the pipeline crossing. So this is basically terrible news for um, energy transfer partners and very good news for the, the protesters. Last night there were fireworks. There were people, you know, hugging and shouting and celebrating. Um, so it, it's not a permanent victory by any means. I think that's something to, to make very clear for a variety of, of factors. Uh, but, yes, that was the news as of yesterday. And it came as a surprise, certainly to me, and I think to most people um, who weren't in the private discussions between the Army Corps, Stan York, Sioux Tribe, and, and uh, Energy Transfer Partners. So, yeah, this is a big surprise. And obviously uh, it seems to call for a rerouting uh, proposal. Uh, on the other hand, th- the story of the Dakota Access Pipeline in this area is kind of the not in my backyard or maybe not under my backyard and not near my water supply story. Initially, it was going to run 45 miles north of the reservation. It was rerouted to where it has been proposed uh, amid all the protests because they were worried about the municipal water supply in Bismarck. So that kind of raises the question, is there any place for this damn pipeline to go where it's not going to make some group of people uh, very, very worried about their water. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question and sort of a thornier uh, aspect of, of any oil pipeline. You know, the, the um, leaders of the various environmental groups and indigenous rights groups at Sandy Rock would say, no, there isn't really any better place to put this pipeline. We don't, we don't need a crude oil pipeline. Um, and I think we saw that sort of same... Uh, argument being made with uh, the Keystone pipeline, which was shut down, um, and that was the goal, really. I think there's a, but there's a combination of factors. So on the one hand, there are envi- environmentalists who don't want this in- incredible amount of crude oil to be taken out of the back and oil fields and introduced into the atmosphere. I don't have the figures on me, but the amount of CO2 that the pipeline would produce is, you know, I'm, I'm totally just drawing this from my memory because I don't, I don't remember the real number, but it's, you know, it's thousands of thousands of amount of CO2 that be produced by uh, you know cars per year. So the environmentalists would say, no, we don't want this pipeline at all. We should explore alternative energy sources. Um, the, the indigenous rights activists, oh, oh, sorry, the indigenous rights activists um, 
which say that, you know, what we have at play here is a sort of long-standing questions of environmental racism and sovereignty or, or a, a disrespect of native sovereignty because the pipeline was rejected from uh, passing through Bismarck, a 94% white city, which is about 40 miles, something like that, north of, um, of, of the Standing Rock Reservation. So the pipeline was rejected from passing through that city, and they moved it south to within 1,500 feet of the Standing Rock Reservation. So I think for them, the, the issue is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a legacy that evokes a, a long-standing, very problematic relationship between um, the, the state of North Dakota and the U.S. Army uh, and the native population there. So, but I, yes, I do think, uh, I'm not sure, is there a better place to put the pipeline? Certainly for the, the um, members of the, you know, the 10 million people on these reservations who are, are closer to the crossing now. For them, yeah, it is a bit of nimbyism. They could say, you know, anywhere but here. Um, but, uh, but uh, you know, I think if the pipeline were somewhere else, at the very least, they wouldn't feel it's so fair. It's okay to take a risk. It's it's too risky for the municipal water supply of, of 94% white Bismarck, but the decision seemed to have been made that it wasn't too risky for the members of the Standing Rock tribe. Um, so I think that's a large part of, of their of their uh, grievance is, is what seems like a, a sort of a double standard about where pipelines um, will go and who will bear the brunt of, of the, the potential dangers. So, Wes, we've only got about a minute left, and this is a big question, but uh, we have to talk about the big orange elephant in the room. That would be the president-elect. Uh, yeah. He actually did have yep. money uh, at one point. He had, he had ownership. He owned some stock in Energy Transfer Partners, which he claims he's going to get rid of. But he seems to be pretty much of a petrophile. Uh, he seems to like uh, petroleum products. Uh, his daughter's meeting with Al Gore today. He's meeting with Exxon. Um, but I, I've, uh, how worried are people that he might even try to overturn the Army Corps of Engineers decision. I don't know if that's within his purview even. Yeah, they're very worried. I think come come January 20th, um, anything could happen, and there's very much the feeling here that this is a, a victory, but it's possibly a temporary victory. You know, there were about, I think, 3,000 veterans who came over the weekend to support um, to support the the, uh, the protesters who call themselves water protectors. Anyway, the veterans came here, and yesterday I noticed some people saying, celebrating, saying, "Okay, job well done, we won, time to leave." And a lot of a lot of uh, uh, other folks were sort of correcting them and saying, "Yeah, this is a huge victory, the biggest victory we've we've achieved in this entire uh, fight." But it would be very wrong to assume that the fight is over, uh, um, and. As you're suggesting, Trump's investments, both as a general matter of policy, he he said that he you know he wants to unleash um, <laughs> whole whole variety of of a uh, uh, petroleum truck. Right, he, he wants to unleash a whole a bunch of stuff. Wes, Wes Enzino, we're gonna have to call it there. Uh, great reporting uh, as senior editor and writer for Mother Jones. People should track down your latest article. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, especially Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf. We'll be back tomorrow with a show about nothing, but like different from how we usually do a show about nothing. Like we're really going to do it this time. Ben Carson was a great surgeon and he'll be a great HUD secretary. Now, if you'll excuse me, our chief of police is about to perform my hysterectomy. <laughs>